Welcome back to ATBS, the podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Volmerick, and I am so very happy to be here today. My guest today was introduced to me by my daughter, Taylor. She played lacrosse for and graduated from Princeton University. Krista was selected Rookie of the Year, was a three-time All-American, three-time All-Ivy League pick, two-time Ivy League Player of the Year, and still holds the record for number of career points at Princeton. Krista was on the U.S. women's lacrosse team from 1995 to 2007 and competed in both the 2001 and 2005 World Cup Games, winning gold and silver medals. She's the founder and CEO of Get More Brave, which you can find at morebrave.com. I'm stoked to meet Krista Samaras and share our conversation with you. Matt Seiler here, lover of a good competition. One of the other guests on Jeff's phenomenal podcast threw a gauntlet trying to make his episode the most popular on the phenomenal ATBS, the podcast series. Being the frequent guest on the only sub-series, SFAO, I want to make sure that I win. And by winning, Jeff wins. And by Jeff winning, we all win. So please like, share, own, make sure that it gets the popularity it demands as ATBS rules the world. Krista, welcome to ATBS, the podcast. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Mm, it's my pleasure. I've been, I've been looking forward to this one, as we talked about just briefly before we turned on the microphones. It's been a, a bit of a haul for me over the past three or four months, and in some cases, challenging to record podcasts. Under under formerly familiar circumstances, I had, you know, three or four episodes queued up ahead of time. And so anything that I would be recording, let's say today, would be probably three weeks or a month from, you know, going out as an episode. Because I've had this pneumonia thing going on, this one's going to go live next Monday. So like four days from now. So I'm really excited to have you on the show. And I first heard of you through my daughter, Taylor Volmerick, who's a crew athlete and fortunate enough to participate in your brave training and your programs, which she thinks the world of, and she thinks the world of you as well. So she said, yeah, I think this Krista would be really good to have on your show. So thanks for being here. She's funny and she talks a lot. <laughs> your daughter's amazing. Thank you. I'll be interested if you have a different perspective on this. Crew is the only sport that I have seen that has such an individual component and such a team component at the same time. Yeah. And it's fascinating because your daughter's crew coach, Holly Austin, who is a really good friend of mine and been working with us at Brave for since we started really four years ago, you know, we did an, a crew team early on and we found that their bravery and confidence levels were remarkably different than peers their own age. This ended up being true over the next four years. We did a bunch more crew teams and we found that just 
this individual aspect, the individual sport aspect was driving down their bravery and confidence numbers. And just for reference, we measure people's bravery. We measure their confidence. We do it on a number of ways, but the simplest way to explain it is how confident are you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being the most confident, how brave are you on a scale of one to 10? We have some like corroborating other more scientific measures, but this is sort of the the basic number we found generally speaking that confidence and bravery correlate highly through the life cycle of of people that we've measured between the ages of nine and let's say we've gone to about 72 years old. So when you're just hyper-focusing on say college athletes or high school athletes who row, you find that the bravery and confidence levels are lower than average. And we were so wondering why, because anecdotally at least, and from experience, you know, Holly having rowed at Radcliffe actually with my wife, she was saying like, it's just one of those crazy sports where you're driving this individual action and you're competing for a spot on the boat against everybody. And then you're in the boat. Right. And so we thought this was an interesting dynamic to study through the lens of what we already were looking at. It's so crazy because despite bravery and confidence being markedly lower in crew teams, we found that observationally in the room, they were far more brave. And so it's just an interesting thing that we've experienced. And it's allowed us to ask so many deeper questions um, that's robustly added to our understanding of bravery, fear, confidence, and what it looks like when you have somebody fighting so hard in their head. Yeah. And for those who are uninitiated or unfamiliar, the individual piece of the puzzle is the erg, the rowing machine. And then the team, you got to get in the boat and you got to be part of a team. Well, I mean, as an athlete myself, you know, like I was a fierce, fierce athlete. <laughs> yes, you were. Yeah, I played on the USA team and I really made it my life and career through the age of 30. And so, you know, we can talk about a lot of like the identity stuff that I pushed off, really seeing myself as an athlete until I was 30. But I think the interesting thing is that I had this thing that my teammates would call like a kill switch. I just could go to a different place in my head. And when I started working with crew athletes, I was like, so many more of these people are required to do that. I think when you play a field sport and you play a team sport, like, yes, you want to individually train. If you're making it to the top level of that sport, you're like crushing it by yourself with, with teammates, with coaches for sure. But I would say that when I was getting in the trenches with rowers, because we do our sessions with the kids, with the athletes in the place that they train. If I'm lucky enough, if I'm able, I like to see them train and then do our training, our emotional training with them. And it was just so fascinating to be like, oh my God, these kids are going there. They're like going for the kill switch, which took me a long time to develop, you know? And I just thought it was fascinating. How do you train people to deliberately push themselves beyond what they physically want to do and what they mentally want to do? I had an interesting conversation way back towards the beginning of, of ATBS, the podcast, with a, a, an athlete named Billy DeMong, five-time Olympic Nordic combined skier, so cross-country skiing and ski jumping. And cross-country skiing, much like crew, is a quadrupedal sport. All body parts are moving in the game. And he talked about our mind will give out before our body or our body will give out before our mind. I can't remember which comes first, but he talked about being able to kind of remove himself from his body and watch his body fail. So psychologically, my mind is going to let me go further than my body will go, which I think is opposite of what we tend to think. Right. Well, so I was training for the 2005 World Cup 
with the U.S. Women's National Lacrosse Team, you are training where you trade by yourself, and then we come together very infrequently. Um, we're preparing for you know big World Cup play every four years. So in this particular year, I thought you know leading up about eight months leading up to the final tryouts and the games. I got like major trainers and I wanted to simulate as much as I could this team atmosphere. So I had two trainers, one guy named Martin Snow, who ran a boxing studio down here in lower Manhattan. He's awesome. And he kicked my butt every day. And, you know, I was like 210 pounds, so they could barely find somebody or a woman at least that I could box against (laughs) like six foot four. And I was like, okay, I'm like five, six. And we're like, well, we're pound for pound. So here we go. Um, And it was great. He was awesome. But my trainer, Declan Condren, who was a trainer at Equinox, he said to me one day, we're going to work your body to fatigue, absolute fatigue, and we're going to choose your arm muscles. So like your triceps, your biceps. And he goes, and it's, you're going to fail. Like you're going towards failure. What this is a foreshadowing of what I do for a living now, but you're going to go to failure. I didn't trust him. I was like, there's no way I'm, I'm the toughest person I know. And he's like, we're doing it kind of the reverse thing. I was like, I will always be able to have it in my brain. Like I will always be able to make, I'm so mentally tough that I will keep pushing. It was the weirdest moment. First, I was like, I think my muscles aren't working anymore. You know, rationally. Like I'm, I'm doing all the things like I'm tired, I'm fatigued, but like my mind, I go to my kill switch place and I'm like in there and I continue to do what he tells me to do, which by the way, is just these like, I forget what they call like deficit pushups. So I'm just, I'm starting up and then I'm slowly going down and I'm starting to feel like wavering at the bottom where I don't think I can get myself back up. And then he puts me to the floor. So now he's like, okay, in case you fall, like you're going to be the floor. So I'm watching my body still do it, but I'm like, I'm starting in my head to feel, I don't know if it felt like insecurity. I was like, something's happening. Like, I think my mind can no longer take over. The pain is too much. The fatigue is too much. And I remember being on the floor. My face is on the floor. I am trying so hard in my brain to push my body up and it is done. And that's when I understood the power of my kill switch mode. How much I could occupy space beyond physical fatigue for my mind to be able to take over, but that there was a limit. I never wanted to go back to that limit. It was a little sad. I thought I was um, undefeatable. You know, I thought I was like so tough. And I do wear that as a badge of honor, like that I have that kill switch place that I still go to. I mean, somebody said, you know, do you want to give birth naturally? You want to have epidural? I was like, oh no, I'm going for the experience. Like I'm doing this. Like this feels like another opportunity for me to be athletic. (laughs) You know, this is like a race. You don't really know how long it's going to last. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do it, lady. Let's do it. And we did it. So I'm 56 years old, right? And I've been athletic most of my life. And anybody who knows me knows that that's kind of, you know, that's my gift. I was a Nordic ski jumper for 18 years and sport has just come naturally to me. Over the past four months, this pneumonia thing basically takes you out of the physical. It's like, okay, sit your ass down on the bench and I'm not much for riding the pines, right? Like anybody who knows me knows that I'm not a bench sitter. I'm not the water boy. I'm going to get out there and do it. And so it's been really interesting to be taken out of the physical game for a period of time. Holy cow, is it humbling. It's unfamiliar, it's uncomfortable, it sucks, it can be incredibly discouraging. But then there are all these tools that I have from sport and athletics and meditation and yoga and Qigong that go, oh, well, I can put these things into play and I can navigate through this. But we become so accustomed to being able physically to do what we do and what we want to do and what we want our bodies to do. And I've had this really like 135 days of 
sit your ass down on the bench and concentrate on healing. So fortunately, there are some things that I've learned, and this isn't a podcast about me, but it does play in to, ah, right? Like we're not always going to be able to be, whether it be through injury or life circumstances, we're not always going to be at our peak. I was talking to a group of athletes and, uh, you know, we, we work with a number of athletic departments at universities and, and everybody feels sidelined right now. Very different nature of why we're sidelined. Obviously, COVID has wreaked havoc on the college athletic world. This is a funny way to look at it, but if you've ever been injured or you've been a parent of somebody who's injured or a coach of somebody injured, you're always coaching them to the positive side of what it's like to be on the bench. There's a lot of advantages there. You're, you get a different perspective. You increase that like hangriness to get back on the field. All of a sudden you'll do anything to just go through the pain of what it takes to be competitive. And again, that perspective is so huge. And so I was saying that this year, right, the opportunity to be injured, the opportunity to be sidelined, allows such a crazy amount of, obviously you don't want the atrophy mentally, physically in in the competitive spirit. This is not a year to throw away, even if college sports aren't going to come back fully into play. This is a year to teach what I would like to call all-terrain skills that you don't get, especially when you're young, because you're just so in the game all the time. I think that the the bench is really valuable and we're going to learn how valuable it can be with a lot of these competitive athletes who can't get in the boat who can't get on the water with their teams, who can't get on the fields or courts. And that's going to be huge. And this is where I think that we should be looking to support college athletes, high school kids, athletes, because it's like no one else is giving them like the opportunity right now to sort of thrive. And that's where we've been focusing our pivot with our business. Everybody's talking about where they pivoted. We've pivoted to that very specific support. And that's how I directly and intimately accounted your daughter this summer. All-terrain skills. Yeah, I love that. I know this from talking to Taylor. At one point, she confided in me, you know, maybe a month ago or so, that if she knew then what she knows now, she may have taken the fall semester off. And mostly because of the all the classes start to look the same on a computer screen. Learning the all-terrain skills. I love that. That, oh yeah, no, it's not always going to be about who can be faster, who can be stronger physically in the boat or any other sport. Sometimes it's going to be about who can navigate through the really challenging times as we are right now. Yeah. I mean, I think that we focus our effort on specialization for kids in sport, especially and saying, listen, like get better at this earlier on, but we do neglect the management of anxiety, stress, what we would call fear as the pressure and the stakes are rising. And because the pressure in recruiting is happening so much earlier, or at least it was before COVID, we're sending kids off to college without those fear management skills, but expecting them to perform at a high level. And I think that sort of it more dramatically affects girls and women as we've seen. And so I love that this year is an opportunity for everybody to sort of say, okay, how can I be emotionally stronger, which requires emotional vulnerability? How can I be mentally tougher, which requires recognition of a vulnerability? And of course, how can I put all that together, make that the glue with my skills or my sports? So I want people to see this as a huge opportunity for those, what we call altering skills. Taylor brought this up, the fear, bravery, and confidence. You were just working through that, I think. You know, I knew that there wasn't a lot of research out there on courage, that there was a little bit of a hole in the literature marketplace there. So we could maybe discover some things. And I had no idea that fear was the critical component of bravery, that in order to be considered a brave act, that you have to be 
afraid of it. And so I've just been obsessed with how do you design programming to activate people's bravery by understanding what makes them afraid. If you're afraid of, uh, let's say, not public speaking, if you're not afraid of public speaking and I get you in front of a group talking, I'm not really activating your bravery. It's not something that you're scared of. But if you're afraid of failure and I help you to practice failure, then you're working in the fear you are fighting in your real life and you're learning how to brave it in real time. That's what we do. Now we've found that bravery and confidence correlate. So people don't necessarily know why they want to be more brave or if they want to be more brave, but they know they want to be more confident. We're able to say, listen, if we help you practice doing this bravery thing, it's also going to impact your increase of confidence. Then they're like, well, what? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. People are like, well, buy that. (laughs) Coaches like, right, right. So we're trying to figure out, this is a process, right? Like we are like fear hacking, basically. Fear is, it seems to be something that is being more regularly studied and looked at today than it has been historically. I'm kind of guessing on that, but we have to acknowledge and embrace fear, I think. And and again, I'm not the expert, right? I was a ski jumper. I was afraid at times, you know, you got to go down the hill. You're going to have to pull out of the starting gate and you're going to go and you're not going to stop till you get to the bottom. And it might be windy and it might be icy and it might be this and it might be that, or you might have fear of failure or fear of success or whatever it might be. But I'm curious about this for listeners, people, humanity. Should we be embracing it? Should we be acknowledging it? Should be like, I think you just said, working towards it. Yeah. So I think what pisses me off the most about like the messaging that's out there right now, particularly to kids and definitely to athletes is to be fearless. This is a word that we use all the time, but it's also a command, fear less. The problem I have with that is you don't actually get to control your fear. This is like an amygdala thing. This is like deep inside. This is a survival thing. And so we translated it over time to be things like anxiety or to be to be fearful of what we call emotional fears. And what we found in our research is actually we recognize very early on kid fears were very different than adult fears. And we're like, interesting. So kids are afraid of things, what we call physical fears. So outside threats to physical well-being, things like bugs, heights the dark. And when you're a kid, you have the agency to manage those fears. You can kill the bug. You can run away from it. You can turn on the lights. If you're afraid of the dark, you can come down from that tall place that's freaking you out. Right? So like, there you go. Adults, we recognized, were afraid of failure, loss, rejection. These were emotional fears. They were inside threats to emotional well-being. So we kind of zoomed in. And we're like, when is this, this change happening? It's not surprising, even if it's shocking, that it happens between the ages of 11 and 13 years old. So by the time we have a 15-year-old group, 80% of 15-year-olds would report an emotional fear as their biggest fear, whereas 80% of a group of 10-year-olds would report a physical fear as their biggest fear. So we zoom in then, of course, again, to figure out what are people scared of when they are saying their biggest fear is an emotional fear. And the number one biggest fear is failure by far. And that's true before the pandemic and is true afterwards. I had an hypothesis that the fears would change. They have not changed. They're not different across men and women, boys and girls. In terms of the inflection point that happens between 11 and 13, that's when they change. Now, our thing is don't pretend you don't have them. Don't stuff them down in your pinky toe and all of a sudden you're drinking 75 cups of coffee. You're like, I'm not scared. What do you mean? I'm not scared. It's fine. You know, that's where we get in trouble, especially hide your fear, act as if we have imposter syndrome floating around like, you know, it's it's gangbusters now. And that's simply because we're acting as if we're not afraid, but we are. And so what we say is 
Say what you're afraid of. Say what you are afraid of. And then we can figure out how to build your bravery in the face of it. To neutralize fear, you're talking about coming up with the same amount of bravery. And to move through and in that fear, you're talking about coming up with a little bit more bravery. So people say fearless, we say brave more. They call the girl the fearless girl, you know, that stood across the charging bull and it made me so mad. It was like, she's not fearless, she is brave more. It seems to me that there are so many people that are exploring mindfully with intent to break outdated paradigms, to shift outdated paradigms, right? Like the fearless piece versus, you know, more brave. I hear it with Taylor all the time in our conversations. And, and hey, she's 19 years old. There are things, she just moved into her first apartment in Ithaca, New York. You know, hey, there are things that are unfamiliar. And she'll check in periodically and say, hey, dad, what do you think about this? But being more brave versus being fearless. Like that's the agency piece. Yeah, right. I can be more brave. I can take steps towards that, but how do I actually stop fearing? You know what I mean? And kids all the time say, I don't know when to be brave. I'm like, you know when to be brave. It's right there with your fear. Every time you're scared is your opportunity to be brave. And it's this stupid little small piece of like funny information, but it unlocks their head. So your daughter Taylor walking around now, if she's trained with me, then she's walking around looking for ways to make things harder and scarier because she knows that's where her practice is going to come from, that her bravery muscles are going to be built on like looking to see how much she can tolerate risk in any benign situation. And then of course, that'll allow her to feel fortified to tackle the stuff that's really hard and scary. And by the way, fear is personal. So what's really hard and scary for me is what's really hard and scary for me. We found, this is so cool, we found that there are sort of three ways to get more brave. That's the meat of your bravery practice. Now, curiosity and purpose are like the sandwich buns. We'll talk about that at a different time. But the bravery practice is kind of breaks down to three things. Like one, it's like being honest with yourself. That is really hard, especially if you don't have somebody guiding the questions you should be asking. So like deeper and deeper understanding and knowledge of yourself. I think it's why we love meditation. It's the therapy base of everything, but you can do this on your own as well. Second is taking brave action. And this is really, really important to know the difference. What we consider to be brave, and this is where I love that the focus is on bravery now in, in our culture, that you have people like Brene Brown really talking about this widely, but people think bravery is firefighters. They think that's what brave is. And by the way, that is brave. It's called general bravery. It's when everybody agrees that the thing someone's doing is brave. And what we work to design programming to activate is personal bravery. So if it's scary for you, it's you being brave. So for some people, public speaking is really scary. And when they do it, it's brave. If they are not scared of public speaking, doing it is not brave for them. So personal bravery. So taking brave action a little bit outside of your comfort zone is practicing bravery. And the final thing is witnessing brave action. And this is where we find that amazing adage, you know, courage is contagious. When you see somebody do something you're scared to do, you get braver. And when you see somebody do something you know they're scared to do, even if you're not scared, you still get braver. And this is, I think, hugely helpful for us right now in a society that's so looking at ourselves is to be up and out and looking where you can find bravery every step of the way. And I think particularly for kids, seeing it in each other is really huge and saying, which is not using the language. I see you being brave, Jeff. I see you being brave. That is a huge thing to recognize and a huge thing to say and a huge thing to hear. Do you think that what you just said, where we see somebody being brave, doing something that we have fear of, that we become more brave? Oh, yeah. 
that's aspiration. You know, like that's the crux of like sort of motivation science is that you see it and you can be it. That's one thing. And you get that charge, that want, that opportunity to exercise your agency. So if we observe something and somebody being brave, then we gain confidence, we gain bravery. I wonder if that's neuroplasticity. Our bodies and brains don't know the difference between us doing it and us thinking it. And neurons and neural pathways that fire together wire together. So that's kind of a Bruce Lipton, Joe Dispenza sort of concept. But we have this neuroplasticity and the ability to create new neural pathways. And I imagine that those things intersect what you just said, where we observe and we're like, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And we become more brave and we gain that confidence. Those are neural pathways firing in our own brain that then you know, we take on. Yeah, I think fundamentally, so we have a really strong foundation of existing literature and how we built our programming. We have a legit logic model and we do all of our measurement and evaluation against that logic model. And it's been really, really vetted. One of the key ingredients, and there are many, but one of the key foundational pieces that we rest a lot of our stuff on is the neuroplasticity, like identified in the idea of growth mindset by Carol Dweck. So that if you think that you can become better at something, right? Then you give yourself neurologically so many more chances to be better at that thing. One, as you mentioned, you have more neurons firing and then you have more bridges built and you have stronger bridges and pathways built in the brain. So yes, that's one element is like you can get better at so many different things. Also positive psychology, that there's an angle of psychology. This is sort of started by Martin Seligman and Chris Peterson in I think the late 80s, early 90s. Um, They identified 24 character strength. Bravery is one of them. But the idea that you don't have to just say that the brain is depressed or it's chemically imbalanced and then here's the chemical and you solve the problems that way. They're saying, yes, it's important for many, many people. It's critical for many people. But what if we just looked at the brain and we started looking at like the positive ways we could reinforce the brain and contribute to overall well-being? This is sort of the school of thought that we subscribe to at Brave, that things like optimism and hope things like love, zest, things like appreciation of beauty, courage, that you can grow in these things. And sort of it's a marriage of and a braiding of those concepts, both the neuroplasticity and all the benefits we know from Dweck's work and also this foundational positive psychology. And you can see so many different people applying this out in the real world. Angela Duckworth, who's worked on grit, has a lot of really interesting things to say about it. You can go to characterlab.org. They talk about this. You can go to viacharacter.org and sort of map your own strengths. It's really, really cool stuff. But yes, the propensity to get more brave is there. Our job is then to say, how do you do it? What did you study in college? This is the best. <laughs> <laughs> like American history or something? <laughs> oh, it's even better. Like you're not going to believe this twist. So technically I graduated from college with a degree in politics, but I went for two years to college and then I failed out. And I took a year off. I had to take my injury year, my sideline year, my gap year, my, you know, but whatever it was then, I went to my local university, didn't matriculate, and then got back into my old school and went for two more years. But what I failed out of college was in psychology 101 and statistics. Quite literally what I do now. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. But now, I mean, I can't, I can't get enough. Right. Clearly. It sounds very much like when somebody gets into something and just, it's so fascinating and you can just keep going deeper and deeper. And here you are coming into contact with so many 
young people and learning every step of the way, I'm sure, observing, seeing it happen, and then integrating what you're learning every time. And you've been doing this for four years? Brave's four years old. Before that, I was a coach of thousands of girls who wanted to play lacrosse in college, but I was really focused on girls from non-traditional lacrosse playing areas. So kids who didn't necessarily have a high school team, they didn't have coaches, they didn't have the game to watch in their local areas. I wanted to put them on a level playing field with girls who were playing, you know, 365 days a year, 50 weekends, who had access to the best everything. And we were able to do that. So I did that for about 15 years. And it was in 2012 who I met my now wife, who is in this field of, she's in education, she's a professor, but she was like, you know, you're like doing science. You're saying hustle, but have you ever heard of this work by Angela Duckworth? I was like, I had no idea. I didn't know about Andre in a deliberate practice. I didn't know about expert anything. I didn't know about goal setting science. I didn't know about any of that, yet I was doing it in my work. So in 2012, I translated all the stuff we were doing coaching wise to be um, not scientifically based, but scientifically inspired. And so that was my huge formative year of like changing my stuff over. And then 2014, I sold my company. I transitioned it for two years, but because we had the girls, obviously we asked permission for the parents. We did a lot of this bravery training stuff with them while I was forming it. And then in 2016, officially started Brave. And I think that it was as much my coaching background as it was my like failing psychology out of college. But I think the biggest indicator of why this is like the thing that I should be doing is I'm a weird emotional into it. And that's probably because I've struggled with depression since I was like eight, since I can even remember. And so I'm super sensitive. So I've been taking emotional data from a really weird angle, really intimate, weird, trying to understand to help myself survive angle for so long now that like I'm, I'm really good at designing programming to help people feel the result they want. And then that can help them better explain their own pathway to get there. We could do a whole podcast and just go back in your life. Oh my God, it's insane. I'm also one of six Greek kids in like a big Greek family. It's insane. <laughs> Where did you grow up geographically? <laughs> Annapolis, Maryland. My parents are middle school sweethearts. We all went to their high school. All my brothers and sisters and I played lacrosse in high school and in college. And that was when you got to spend the time together as a family, right? Yeah, I actually don't, like everybody waited for my athleticism to come. I never saw myself as an athlete. I never felt like an athlete. I was an artist. I was a weirdo. I was like a performer. And I would say to this day that that probably drove my success in lacrosse. The more people in the stands, the more I felt like, All right, game on, let's go. Right, right. I know that feeling. I'm familiar with that feeling. Like, oh, ski jumping, there's a big crowd down there. It's the home crowd. Freaking great. I know I can win today. How many, um, do you have two kids? I have two kids. I have a six-year-old and a, and a four-year-old. They were five and three at the beginning of the pandemic. They are now six and four. Um, I have aged 75 years since then. Yeah, we're doing, you know, hybrid school. Um, the little one is back, but it's um, it's game on. You know, like I'm an entrepreneur. I thought I was going to be, I'm a worker. Like I want to get up in the morning and I want to like love on my kids and I want to go to work and I want to crush it all day long and I want to make stuff and build stuff and you know, and then come out back home and love my kids and do the dinner and then go to bed and then do it all again. And then really hardcore it on the weekends. That was my identity. And then everything changed. I've been in a six and a half month, like identity shift now, you know, like I am the mom. Wife has a big job. She needs clear margins on that job. And so, you know, making adjustments there, it's been a really hard shift for me, but I'm almost there. Let's talk about that identity piece of the puzzle, how we allow ourselves or our identity becomes tied to what we do versus who we are. Fascinating, right? Like, again, I can go back to my current experience, which is 
most people who know me are like, oh yeah, Jeff, I mean, good luck keeping up with him. Don't even try. Oh, well, that's all changed. <laughs> oh yeah, that's not who I am. It's something I've been capable of. And, you know, and you just said it, right? Like things have shifted dramatically in your world. Yeah. Did you put that identity like on the shelf for now? Like, how do you identify now? Like, what are your biggest identity markers currently? Yeah, good question. I guess I've, some of it is just, you know, like you don't really think about it, right? And then people are like, geez, you're having a hard time walking up the stairs, Jeff. And I'm like, yeah, right? It's not really anybody that I'm familiar with. This is not the me that I'm familiar with. You know, beginning to learn to be resilient, learn to be accepting, being willing as a male to admit vulnerability and fear. Like, shit, is this how my life's going to be? Because, you know, I don't love it. I don't like it. I don't want it to be this way. And the stiff upper lip thing, right? Like, I'll just, well, I'll just gut it out. I, I won't, I won't let people know how much this sucks for me. And then there are people in my life who'll be like, hey, you know what, Jeff? You don't have to keep the stiff upper lip. You can admit and, you know, let it out that this sucks. And I've begun to learn to, yeah, just let it rip, right? There are times when I just need to freaking cry and be okay with that. Okay, get that out because that's not being healthy. You know, it doesn't need to be in. Don't need to bottle that up. So learning, continuing to learn every step of the way, that's for sure. I think that a lot of the vulnerability, I mean, we see such a difference in the way that we have to deliver our programming if we want it to be effective for boys versus girls and for young men versus young women. Adults, we can get at it in the same place, but we try to actually separate by gender. And that's not to say that there's not a huge focus on um, non-binary kids and, and individuals uh, or people who prefer not to identify with, with any particular gender. But when we, our work, I would say is like heavily, it is heavily gendered. Girls are much more willing to be brave emotionally than they are physically. And so we have to like use that emotional vulnerability and a willingness to go there to like get them to move and change that and channel that into physical action. And boys and young men are sort of the reverse. We have to use their willingness to be physical to get them to go deeper and be vulnerable emotionally. And what the end product is for both of them by the end of the session, whether it's a 90 minute session, which is most of what our work is, or it's an end of a 24 hour session as we did last year with a hundred high school boys who are sophomores and a hundred high school girls who are sophomores separately. It's like, oh my God, I feel so much more expressed. And that is like what we're trying to go for with fear. If you, Jeff, right, in this new pace of your world, all these different new identities where you're giving up so much of what you wouldn't want to have give up. I would say I'm in the same boat there, but different things where it's about figuring out how to express your fear, how to express your vulnerability. That full expression emotionally or physically is what we're going for in terms of the experience because that makes you feel like, oh, okay, the truth is out. Honesty with the self piece. Taylor talked a little bit about the seven line pitch and the I am statement. This is a good time to, I guess, two things. One, morebrave.com is where you learn everything about what you're doing. And then I'd love to go back into the seven line pitch or go into that and the I am statement. I've seen Taylor's I am statements. I've seen it, you know, on the mirror in the bathroom when she was still living at home and 
So I think it's worth sharing. I think I know it is. Yeah, I actually was going to say, hey, you should build your pitch here. So it doesn't take very long, but I'll, I'll explain. And if you want to jot down your own lines, Jeff, I think it'd be awesome for you to close this out with uh, an amazing performance of your own seven-line pitch. So seven-line brain pitch is the tool that we build, we use in our sessions to build. So people, it's a past, the present, and the future of you. And it changes based on your current goal. And it's goal-setting science, it's affirmation science, it's a whole bunch of stuff rolled into one. So I'm going to give you my pitch and then I'll break down the lines as you build yours. So it's Chris Samaras, 1999, New York City. I am bold. I am curious. I surprise. Be boom. So first three lines, first line is my first and last name, but my first and last name is not just my first and last name. It's a story. Every single line of this is a full story. You're just using symbols to like truncate it, to make it really easy to say, really potent to say, but you know the whole story. So my name, Krista Samaras, your name, think about the story that it tells. I can tell you that I hated my name for so long because I have a lisp. And so it's Krista Samaras, a lot of S's in there. And I got made fun of like a ton in elementary school, middle school, high school. It wasn't until I went about 10 years ago to Greece, to my homeland with uh, my whole family. And I realized that our last name, Samaras, it's so deeply rooted in the culture over there and connected me. And then I just became so much more proud to say my name, Krista Samaras. It's almost like the lisping went away, but it is fully packed. I've kept my name even in marriage. And so these are my choices. So when I say my first and last name, Krista Samaras, that's my whole story. That's all that story bundled in one. I won't give you every line with a story like that, but you get the idea of how deep this iceberg is for each line. Each line you say with a period at the end of it, because each line is a full story. You want to not have commas lingering out there. So first line is your first and last name. Jeff, give me yours right now. My name is Jeffrey Volmerick. Second line is a year in your life that's the most significant year to you from the chair you sit in right now. 10 years ago, I might not have given you the same year, but the lessons in my current season of life call for 1999 to be my year. So think of a year most significant to you in the life that you've lived so far. Pick your year, Jeff. 1990. So say your first line and then your second line. My name is Jeffrey Volmerick. 1990. I love it. And you can just say Jeffrey Volmerick. Okay, so third line is same as the year. It's a place of the greatest significance. So anywhere from your address growing up, 227 Wardour Drive, a country that you visited, Tokyo, Japan, um, or any place that makes you feel like you know, it's the most significant place to you from the chair you sit in right now. Mine is New York City. What's yours? Mm-hmm-hmm. Lake Placid, New York. I love it. Okay, all three lines. Go ahead, Jeff. Uh, Jeffrey Volmerick, 1990, Lake Placid, New York. Beautiful. All right, that's your past. You've chosen the story of your name. You've chosen the year. You've chosen the place. That is what you're pulling from your past to inform this season of your life. All right, now we're in the lines five and six. These are your affirmations, but they're not just like positive affirmations. They're truth affirmations, which I feel like is more powerful. So you're going to pick three words that sort of get this Venn diagram of you going on here. So you're coming from every angle. Take a ton of poetic uh, license here. If you want to, um, you can be creative. I've had people say, I am a sister, but then that moves to, I am family. That moves to, I am love. That means I am home. It'd be like, I am athletic to, I love to surf to, I am the wave to, I am the ocean. Right. So you can be real deep with this if you want to. You can always just say, I'm a guy, I'm a painter, right? Like, so, so these are three, what we call I am statements. So what would be three words to describe you? 
get in your fear, get in your pain, get in your, your old identity, get in your new identity. But it's the man you are right now sitting in the chair you're sitting in right now. It's that guy, this guy. There's the big challenge. It's hard. This is probably what I do the most with people in terms of private work. They're like, Hey, can I get a half an hour where I can like just work on my pitch? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And just so you know, it takes 90 minutes to build this whole pitch when we're doing a brave session because this is the scaffolding. This is the skeleton that we're building on. So I'm asking you to do it in a couple of minutes, but we've also, you know, do it in five minutes and kids are really good at, uh, people are really good at just kind of nailing themselves. And these are the present statements. Yeah. Yep. Who you are right now. You want them to not be redundant necessarily. So mine are, I am bold. I am curious. I surprise. Mm. I am, uh, let's see. I, I, I am vulnerable. Mm, good one. I am hopeful. Mm. I am alive. That could be, I am thriving. That could be, that, that's one that could go. Yeah. I was saying hopeful too. You could say there's three variations. There's always three killer variations on this. Like I am hopeful. I am hope. I hope. It's so crazy what you can do with words. And I'm obsessed with words. So these are really good. So you can always update. So give me your top six lines. Jeffrey Volmerick, 1990, Lake Placid, New York. I am vulnerable. I hope I am alive. I love it. And each one of those sentences, make sure you end it with a period. So I am vulnerable. That's the story. I hope. That's the story. I'm alive. That's the story. All right. Last line. Seventh line. This is the future. This is a goal. This is a goal. Think of a goal that you have. Think of something hard you have to do. It's hard you want to do. You got to pull it all together and you're going to like really have to go for the gusto here. You got to be a little scared of this thing you want to do. Um, you're not even going to tell me what that is. It's just going to inspire the seventh line. So think of something in your head. It could be something you want today. Ideally, I think six to eight weeks is a good one. And what you're going to think about is a character strength you have. You have it already. You don't need to go out and get it. You already have it. You can have it a little bit. You can have it a lot, but you have it. Character strength that you need to employ in order, very specifically, in order to, to get that or to stay in pursuit of that big, brave goal. Okay. So like on an everyday basis, like grit is my thing. Like I, I work longer and harder than anybody else. But in the goal I'm going for right now, actually, grit is not the thing I need to employ. I need to employ patience. I have it, but I hate it, but I need it. (laughs) (laughs) So the idea here, and I I love asking people this question, is like, what character strength have you had to use to deal with COVID that you weren't necessarily using as much before COVID, right? Like, or this time that we're marking by COVID, not the actual disease. Patience. Oh, God, right. Uh, Surrender. Like, there's a... There's a lot for me that, that are very, what we would call like, I don't know, not active words. Right. Compassion. Yes. All right. So you knew the goal. So the, a lot of these things, like, remember, like we try to keep as much anonymity as possible. So like, you know, your whole story, you know, all these, what all these words mean deep below the water surface. You know what your brave goal is. This word that you're choosing, the B word is the word you need to be in order to stay in pursuit of that goal. It's not really about achieving the goal for us. It's about like being in pursuit of it. It's the least you can do to be able to achieve it one day. So you got your B word? I'm wandering through a number of different B words. Be committed. Be committed. Yeah. Be consistent. Try to get as specific as you possibly can, because this is the thing where I can tell you when I realize we use this B word, B-E, like that's the B word. 
this company I own is called Brave Enterprises, but my company before this was called Bounce Entertainment. And so this B word has been with us for a really long time, almost 20 years now we've been using this and people change their B word. It's like a big thing. People tattooed their B word in all kinds of places. Now that we've been doing this for so long, this is a word that sort of like, it's the thing. It's all you got. It's all you need to be. But it is the thing. It's like, you have to remind yourself. My word has been be boom for a couple of years now. You know, sometimes I change it when I'm dealing with a very specific goal. Like just recently I had this very specific goal where it was be patient. I just abandoned be boom. It's usually associated with like a big goal being fulfilled or you're transitioning into something else. So it's okay if you make it about something very immediate, but get really specific because, you know, I would say like your daughter, you put it up on your refrigerator, put it up on your coffee maker, put it up on your water bottle, put it up on your skis, put it up on your bed, put it in the book, make it your bookmark. Like this is the thing. This is like personal inspiration, personal motivation. And, you know, it's sort of intrinsic when you've identified it yourself based on a goal you really want, having been inspired by the person you are right now sitting in the chair and what you pulled from your past. What you got? Well, I'd like to be consistent and I'd like to go a little deeper than that. I'd like to find something, you know, where it's so easy to veer off course and lose my focus on health and being patient and consistently doing what I need to do to get healthy physically. And really it's a physical thing at this point. So be consistent, be, I think be consistent. Be consistent. Yeah. That's a good placeholder. If you don't find something more specific, then use that until something pops into your head. All right. You got all seven lines. Let's hear it. Jeffrey Volmerick, 1990. Lake Placid, New York. Hold on, I gotta stop you. You said 1990, like there was a question. Tell us the story and end that story with a period. Start over, go ahead. Jeffrey Volmerick, 1990, Lake Placid, New York. I am vulnerable. Oops, stop again. You hear that? I am vulnerable. And then there's something else. I am something else. I am something else. You want to be like, I am vulnerable. That is the whole story. So there's nothing that comes after it as far as you're concerned. But then of course your next line comes after it. This is your life. This is like you, that kind of guy who's like, I'm doing my story. Then Jeffrey Romer is an entire story. Tell it and end it. And then give us to what 1990 is as a whole story. Line by line, go. Jeffrey Volmerick, 1990, Lake Placid, New York. I am vulnerable. I hope I am alive. Be consistent. Oh my God, so beautiful. It's so badass. I can't. You crushed it. So good. (laughs) Ah, Krista, I didn't expect that. I love that. That's one of the things I love about this format, about podcasting. I have no freaking idea where we're going when we're starting. Based on what Taylor has talked about and told me about about you and Holly and her experiences. I admitted to her when I got on the phone, I said, I'm a little intimidated. Chris is going to be is high energy and focused and has a lot going on. And, and she said, really? Like she was surprised that there was anything, you know, in me like that, I think. Um, and I said, sure. Right. Like, but part of that is just not knowing where we're going. I do some research. Yeah, you know, obviously I want to know who I'm talking to and, and have some idea what I'd like to learn. But then I also like the spontaneity of it. It can be 30 minutes, it can be 45 minutes, it can be an hour, it can be whatever makes the most sense. And, you know, Taylor said, ask about the seven line pitch. Now I have mine. 
you have yours. I would argue that, you know, I listened to a bunch of episodes of the podcast, obviously, to do my own research. And, you know, I'm braver because I listened to those episodes. And now I just have a firsthand experience with you in real time where we're both, you know, breathing the air that's around us. Like I'm witnessing your own vulnerability, which I would call bravery. And that is beautiful. So you made me braver today again. Krista Samaras, I look forward to meeting you in person somewhere down the line when we have that opportunity. And I am extremely grateful that you made time in a busy life. And during this very interesting time in history, today is November 5th, and there's a lot going on out there in the world. So thank you for taking the time, making the time, sharing your time and, and sharing your knowledge and expertise and your life with me and with the ATBS nation, ATBS listenership. Yeah, I appreciate it all. I love what you're doing. And I love what you're doing too. So morebrave.com and Krista Samaras, thank you so much. What a treat. Be well. You too. Thank you for listening to ATBS, the podcast, and this episode with Krista Samaras. I encourage you to have a look at her website, morebrave.com. And I truly appreciate your interest and enthusiasm for ATBS, the podcast. Please subscribe, share, tell a friend, all those good things. The more the merrier. And until next time, be patient and be kind. <laughs>